Um, by now, you're in Matthew chapter 16, I hope, and, and if you're there, I want to just chat a little bit about what's going on in terms of where we're going. I want to start a new series today called Church Life, and, and the reason I want to start this new series is because over the last couple of months, um, in the middle of this pandemic, I, and I'm sure you, have either heard this question asked or you have asked this question uh, um, yourself, and that is this, when is the church going to open back up? When is the church going to open back up? It's a popular question. It is a completely and totally honest question. It's a natural question. I've asked the question myself, but it is the wrong question. Follow me, here's why. It's because the church has never closed. Sure, there are many of our buildings around this city and around this state and around this country and even around this world that are not available to us right now. And sure, we, um, as I mentioned, we are all preparing and working our best to get our in-person Sunday morning gatherings back going, but the church is not closed. In fact, the church was never closed. The church doesn't have hours. The church is not a business. The church is not a building. The church is, in fact, something greater, something more permanent, something more eternal and enduring. Now, that doesn't mean that the church hasn't had a tendency to act like it's closed. You know, after all, we typically confine the nature and the function of the church to what we do on Sunday mornings. And while Sunday mornings, uh, it may be very important, it actually leads to the impression that if Sunday is uprooted, then the church is no longer relevant. And that is is, is not the result of the church itself being deficient, but that rather is the result of our understanding and our commitment to her being deficient. You know, one thing that COVID-19 has done for me is to remind me how important it is for us to rightly define what the church is and what the church is not. To understand the nature and the role and the function of the church. And so that is the goal of this series starting this morning. We wanna roll, we wanna roll back the curtain on the ideal of church and we want to grow in our understanding of the nature and the role and the function of the church. So we're gonna be going through several passages over the next couple of weeks to help us understand church. And I hope by the end of this, that you'll be able to not only see that the church is never closed, but you'll also be able to see the role that you play in demonstrating that her doors are always open, even if the doors of her buildings are not. Now this morning's passage is the first passage that I want, I want to deal with in this series because it's the first time that we actually hear the word church come from the mouth of Jesus. What, is Jesus, what Jesus rather is teaching us is something not only about himself, but it's something about us. And of course, it's something about his church in this inaugural moment in which he introduces the church. Look with me together at verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Caesarea Philippi is a, was a territory captured by the Romans from the, from the Greeks during their times of conquest. And, and, and so before the Romans took over the land, 
It was called Panias in honor of the Greek god Pan. But after the Romans took over, Herod Philip named the city after himself. The city was about as pagan as it gets. Many temples were erected in honor of false gods. Uh, sacrifices were made in the honor of those gods. Despicable acts were performed in their honor, all sorts of crazy acts and wicked acts. In fact, it's been said that many traveled on the outskirts of the city to avoid the flat out rank wickedness in the city. On the outskirts amidst the temples of pagan worship, there was this cave and, and, and this cave was said to be known as the gates of hell. And it's here that many believe Jesus began this conversation with his disciples. The conversation starts with two questions. Let's read verse 13 and 14 again. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The first question Jesus asks is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The first thing you need to know about the church as we look at that first question is that it is built on who Jesus is. In other words, it is built on the person of Jesus Christ. The church is built on who Jesus is. Who we believe Jesus is or who we believe Jesus to be determines what type of church we will establish. Here the initial answers were actually admirable answers. We hear them shout out all the heroes, or many of the heroes of the faith, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Each comparison was a powerful one. Each comparison was, again, an admirable one. Each of these men identified, spoke the very words of God to the people of God and called them to repentance. This was no rookie squad. This was the Hall of Fame list. This was the all-star list of biblical characters. And yet, even the comparison to these great men were insufficient. By now, everyone has seen Jesus at this point performing these powerful miracles, and they probably reminded them, or he probably reminded them of Elijah, or maybe his message of repentance gave them glimpses of John the Baptist. None of these comparisons are bad, but they are woefully insufficient. You see, some churches are indeed built on an insufficient vision of Jesus Christ. They view him as a miracle worker, perhaps, and they view him even as an agent of change. They, they may even view him as a prophet and as a person of compassion, and nothing is wrong with any of those comparisons except for the fact that they are simply insufficient. He's more than that. There are some who have seen Jesus as merely a good man and they've chosen to build their churches upon him just being a very good dude. But when we limit Jesus to being just another good and powerful man and nothing more than a man, we empty the church of its power and we place the burden for transformation and the burden for salvation in our hands. Family, it doesn't matter how much good we do in this world. How many demonstrations of love we show 
how many acts of kindness we perform, we are still hopelessly flawed. It doesn't matter that a church should discount, or, or it, and I'm sorry, it doesn't mean that a church should discount any of those things. In fact, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be known for those things. However, while we should be known for those things, we certainly are not saved by those things. You see, without a supernatural savior, a divine rescuer, we are still hopelessly sinful and hopelessly falling short of the glory of God. What we need to fix our eternal dilemma is more than a mere man. We need the God of the universe, which is why the second question Jesus asks his disciples is so important. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, the church is built on who Jesus is, the person of Jesus Christ. It is apparent here that what matters most is not what everyone else thinks about Jesus, but rather what do you think about Jesus? What do those who claim to follow him actually think about who he is? What's even more important is that we don't allow those who aren't following him to dictate how we see him. See, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of people who know who Jesus is. Those on the outside can say who they believe him to be all they want, but those who profess to follow him must know who he is. And who he is is more than a mere man. He is more than a mere prophet. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. To say he is the Christ is to say that he is the one who is the fulfillment of all the promises of old made to God's chosen people. To say he is the Christ is to say that God promised that there was one who was coming to right the ship for Israel, to bring restoration, to bring healing, to bring salvation to his people. But the depths of that restoration, that healing, that salvation was beyond the natural and the temporal. It actually moved out to the spiritual and the eternal. Thus, this salvation required a divine answer. And that divine answer came in the form of not just Christ, but Christ, the son of the living God. Acts chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is ground zero for the church. The fundamental building block upon which all other efforts and teachings hang upon. The church must be built on who Jesus is. Look with me at 16, chapter 16, verse 17. It says, and Jesus answered them, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the church must be built on who Jesus 
is. And the church is made up of those who know who Jesus is. But the church knows who Jesus is because the Father makes him known by his Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 tells us that, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, no one can ever say Jesus is Lord and actually mean it from the depths of their heart without the assistance and aid of God's Spirit. God's Spirit is speaking to Peter in this moment and saying that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you are a part of the true church of Jesus Christ, it is because you know who Jesus is. And if you know who Jesus is, it is only because the Spirit has made him known to you. How many of you treat this actual union with the Lord's church like a supernatural act of grace? Because that's exactly what it is. You see, your salvation through Christ is a divine act of grace, but so is your joining to his church. We must savor our union, not just with God, but with the people of God. And we must treat that union with the people of God as a gift, because it is. So again, we understand that those who belong to the church belong because they know who Jesus is. And we understand that this is important because the church is built on who Jesus is. But another point that becomes clear in this text is that the church is also built by what Jesus is doing. The church is built by what Jesus does. Verse 16 or verse 18 of chapter 16, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God the Father reveals the first truth to Peter and now as a result, God the Son, Jesus Christ, reveals another truth to Peter. You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. This is truly one of the most challenging scriptures in all of the Bible because of the, because of the confusion and the complexity through the years as to what does Jesus actually mean when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Here's what we know, is that that sentence that Jesus gives Peter, it is a play on words. Peter's name means rock. And thus it is, it's as if Jesus is saying, you are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Our Roman Catholic friends believe that, that or rather I believe that my, our Roman Catholic friends take this scripture too far as they try and use it to establish the authority of the Pope by saying in this moment, God is giving the authority of the church to Peter. And thus through the years, starting with Peter, it is then handed down from one man to the next. Hence, papal authority, or papal authority, or however you say it. I believe, that, I believe that's taking it a little too far. Our Protestant brothers and sisters at times don't take it far enough, however, because some don't believe it has anything to do with Peter, but rather it is based on Peter's statement. Christ has not 
building his church on an individual, individual, he is building his church on the proclamation that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, however, I think he captures it because he gives it, he, he gives credence to a little bit of both sides. You see, you cannot ignore the wordplay with Peter's name, meaning rock. And Jesus saying he was going to build his church on the rock. But you also can't ignore uh, Peter's confession as it is the grounds by which the entire gospel is built on. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So what do we do with it? I think we see it as Jesus is saying, I will build my church on the apostles as they proclaim the confession. Jesus is the stone, according to Peter. You, you hear it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter even sees Jesus as the stone. According to Paul, we hear that there can be, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, there can be no other foundation. Paul says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In a different metaphor, the apostles and, po- and prophets, however, are considered the foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you have Peter speaking about Jesus being the stone. You have Paul speaking of Jesus about being, being the stone, but you also have Paul also speaking to the apostles and the prophets as being the foundation. Listen to one theologian's quote that I think captures my heart a little better than even I can. He says this, the name Peter means rock. So there's a bit of play on words here. In essence, Jesus is saying, I tell you, you are rock and on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus acknowledges then some kind of foundation in Peter. By God's grace alone, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's immediately after this confession that Jesus spoke of the church that he is building upon Peter and his confession of faith. Therefore, based on the immediate context, this is how we should understand the rock of the church. Listen, the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Peter is the first apostle who makes this declaration of Christ's identity, and he is the apostle upon whom much of the church's foundation will be built beginning in Acts 2. As a result of Peter's initial proclamation of the gospel in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, around 3,000 people were saved. Right after this, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings of the word, and thousands more came to Christ in the days ahead. Jesus was building his church, and Peter continued to play a central role in this mission throughout the first 12 chapters of Acts. But Peter was not alone. For Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of all the apostles. And beyond Peter, Martin Luther declared, all who agree with the, with the confession of Peter are Peter's themselves, setting a sure foundation. 
This is not to take away from the uniqueness of Peter, but it is to remind us that as we proclaim the gospel, we too are building upon the foundational confession made by Peter approximately 2,000 years ago. What is Jesus building when he says, upon this rock I will build? The rock of the church is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. But unless we begin to think that this construction is happening in our own power, pay very close attention to the words of Jesus in verse 18. He says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. You are a rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. You see, we may labor, but Jesus builds the church. He may use us for a number of different construction projects, if you will, but Jesus builds the church. And here's two important lessons that you can take from this one fact about Jesus building the church. Lesson number one, when the church loses sight that Christ builds the church, we set ourselves up for possible compromise or possible disappointment. Possible compromise because we believe, when we believe rather that the church is solely on us to build and it doesn't appear to be going fast enough, then we start trying to shortcut and manipulate the process to produce the result we desire. Sometimes that comes with us taking the edge off of the message of the gospel in order to draw more people, lowering the cost possibly of following Jesus in hopes that more might stick around and start believing our message. Sometimes that comes with having no expectations of those who become members of our church, leaving sin untouched and unchecked and undealt with so our numbers will never dwindle. Sometimes it's the pressure of being the perfect church with the perfect sermon and all the perfect features and amenities and all the perfect furnishings. Brothers and sisters, you are not responsible to build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ carries the weight of building his church, and he will build his church. Now, of course, he is building it in us and through us and on the proclamation of the gospel through the people of God. And of course, he is leveraging and using our proclamation and using and leveraging our lives to make himself known. And so we should pursue excellence in how we labor for the church. And we should pursue excellence in, the, in all of the things that we are doing within the church. But he is the one who carries the burden of building it. He is the one who carries the burden of bringing his church to completion, not us. And he is more than sufficient to carry that burden. But here's the other lesson that we learn from the fact that Christ builds his church. Because Jesus builds the church, it is guaranteed to prevail against evil and death. Verse 18, it says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Two things should, should 
or two things could be happening rather here in this text. First thing is that the gates of hell is actually a Jewish phrase. And that Jewish phrase we, uh, we, we know actually refers to the place of the dead, the gates of Hades. It is actually referred to in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah chapter 38, verse 10, it says, I said in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. It's the same wording gates of hell, gates of Hades. It is referring to the place of death. So given this particular cultural connection, Jesus could possibly be saying that because I am building my church, it cannot and will not die. There's a very popular saying that's used in TV and movies and books, and that is this, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. The church has been said to be dying ever since, its, ever since its inception. And no matter whether you persecute it, no matter whether you mock it, no matter whether you ridicule it, no matter what has been tried to kill the church, the church cannot and will not die. Even when the church, is, has, even when the church has been said to be declining in one place, we, we, only, we always seem to find it surging and exploding in another place because the church cannot die. And why is that? It's because Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we must go into the world with that confidence that Christ is building the church. And so no matter what opposition the church may face, the church will not and cannot die because Christ is the one who is building it. One last point from this text. Remember the location of this story. We are in Caesarea Philippi. We are on the outskirts of this city, a pagan city with so much idolatry and wickedness that Jewish rabbis taught their students that no good Jew would ever go into the heart of this city. And yet, here are the disciples that are brought to this place by Jesus. Now remember, in this city was a massive cave called the Gates of Hell. I mentioned it to you at the beginning. And this, this cave was considered by many as a passageway for the idol gods between earth and the underworld. And it's, it's right here that it is believed we hear Jesus' words. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So based on what we know about the location, what could Jesus be saying? Well, thinking about the location and the connection to the idol gods passing from earth to the underworld and back from the underworld to earth, the most likely interpretation is that the church will be built and that through Christ, Though my church may stand smack dead in the middle of evil, and though my church may stand smack dead in the middle of forces of darkness, there will be no God, there will be no idol, there will be no devil in hell that will ever be able to overtake it. 
the church that is built on who Jesus is, namely the Christ, the son of the living God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And the church that is built by what Christ has done and is doing, namely his important work of dying on the cross for the sins of the world, that whosoever shall trust him with their lives and repent of their sins shall not perish but have eternal life. That church no matter what demonic forces opposes it, it will prevail. That church can step boldly into the fanned flames of racism and division and injustice in this world, and it will not be consumed, but it will prevail. That church will never be destroyed by a pandemic but it will prevail. Persecution cannot destroy that church, but it will prevail. No idol can destroy that church. No devil can destroy that church. It will prevail. That church can sing the songs of, sing the words of David in the Psalms. Yea, though I walk through the valley in the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me and because you are building us. That is the church that Christ is built and that is the church that Christ is building. That is the church that we are all a part of. And that is the church that we are all a part of because we are a part of Christ. That is the church that is never closed. That is the church whose doors are always open and its work and whose work is always being done. That is the church, though it may stand at the very gates of hell, it will prevail because Christ is the one who builds it. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you that you have called us, Lord. In fact, the very word church, ecclesia in the Greek, means called out. And we thank you that you have called us out, Lord God, and brought us and united us together. And that that union that we enjoy is built upon the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and it is built upon the proclamation, the assignment that you have given your people to go and share that gospel with the world. And that, Father, we are thankful, Lord God, that, that it is your son who builds this church. Lord God, we've been given the privilege to labor and we've been given the privilege to work and we've been given our own assignments within this church, within your church. But Lord, it is your son's church to build. And so, Father, may we rest in that truth. May we not look to manipulate May we not look to go ahead of him, Lord God, but, we, but may we move in his pace. May we move, move in his timing, Lord God. May we seek to do all the things that you have called us to do well, but may, we, but may we never lose sight of who builds it. And Lord, may we enter into this world in all of its opposition and all of its demonic presence 
in all of its pain and all of its suffering and all of its evil and all of its wickedness, may we enter in this, into this world with the confidence, Lord God, that because your son is building the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church will prevail because the church is being built by your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise and all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.